around for a little bit and then finally loses, but he's up and he's at it forever. And so um, let's turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We've been working our way through the whole book. And uh, the beautiful thing about this is uh, God has given us grace to just move on. And we're at one of the climatic points, the culminating points um, in, the pa- in the book of John. If you're going to be rocked off the resurrection, the thing that should make you get excited about Jesus Christ, the thing that should make you tune in when you come into these buildings or you go to any church, is that the, the faith that we talk about, that like if, if religion connects with you more, if you have a religion, please let it be a religion that's worth something. The thing that makes the Christian's religion, using that word loosely, the thing that makes the Christian's preoccupation with his God legitimate is that the one who started our religion or the one who started our faith, was he died, was buried, but then he rose again. Nobody else has the founder of their faith who died and then got up and brushed his shoulders off. Nobody else. So already, if you have a religion that's pretty nice, but the founder of it died and all you have are his tapes and his writings and his memoirs, we got one up on you. Now, the resurrection is one of those terms that you'll sleep on because, one, you've heard it a lot. Two, what does it really mean? Three, before Tupac nicknamed his joint the resurrection, most cats in the hood would have never used the word resurrection. But the beautiful thing about the believer getting rocked off the resurrection is we take our cues from the original people who verified there was indeed a resurrection. It wasn't a hallucination. It wasn't, yo, we think we saw him. We missed him so much we started seeing little mystical figures and silhouettes. It was indeed a resurrection. And we're going to look at some people who got rocked off the resurrection. Then we're going to look at our own lives and see, are we rocked by the resurrection or do we yawn and sort of pass the time away and say, I usually usually only think about this on Easter. So, let's just read and then we're going to unpack. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, or Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and 
put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. May God rock you with just the written account of his word. First of all, the resurrection brings comfort. The resurrection brings comfort. But don't just miss over that. Skip over that. It brings comfort to anyone that's placed all their stock in Jesus Christ. Nobody, like I've been to a casino every now and then. I'm in a hotel. They have a casino in the, in the, in the bottom and I'll walk through the casino. I'm never comforted or aggravated by what's going on in the casino. You know why? I have nothing invested in it. Every now and then somebody's beating their head up against a machine because they've got something invested in it. Every now somebody is rejoicing because they've got something invested in it. I'm neutral on the matter. Perhaps today you may be neutral on the resurrection. But for someone who's got something at stake, someone who's got something invested, they can't be neutral about if there is or if there isn't a resurrection, all those who place all their stock on Jesus Christ are comforted to know that when he died, because he did die, he's going to show you the proof that he died, that he resurrected. It's comfort to those who placed all their weight on him. I mean, if you're thinking about Jesus and something, Jesus plus something, perhaps if Jesus falls through the crack, at least you got something else to hold you up. But, but, but for those who place all their weight on him, a resurrection brings comfort. To those who banked on his promises, I mean, you made some financial things or, or you made some maneuvers or you broke off some ties because of his promises. Well, for you, the last thing you want is for you to make life changes based on his promises. Then he go down. He's not able to keep his promises. For you, a resurrection would bring comfort. To those who elevate him as something more special than the next man. For you, you don't want to have egg on your face. You talk big to your friends about this Jesus. And at the end of the day, he's in the grave decaying like the rest of them. See, for you, a resurrection would bring comfort. Verse 19 sets the scene of some people who are in the midst of extreme discomfort, but the news of a resurrection, the proof of a resurrection, the evidence of a resurrection completely changes their world, brings them comfort, and rocks them, being rocked by the resurrection. Let's read. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the, the, of the, week, the doors being locked for fear of the Jews. First of all, this is a gathering of disciples. Once again, this brings comfort, especially to people who are called the disciples. The way John uses the word disciples, we don't know if this is just a whole bunch of people who call themselves disciples or if this is the 12 minus Judas minus what we're going to find is Thomas, which would mean just 10. Luke's account of something that seems to be exactly parallel to this says that there was the 10 and a few others who happened to be with them there. 
So the idea here is, whatever the case is, these are bona fide disciples. In John's gospel, sometimes disciples prove to not really be disciples. Just like in here, we're going to report. A lot of people came to church. A lot of Jesus' disciples were in the building. Later on, we may find out that some of you may not be disciples. But here, these are the real disciples. It's a gathering, and they're sitting here, and they're, they're, th- this is after Jesus has died, and they're sitting here probably still mourning. There have been some reports that his body was missing, so they're puzzled. A couple of people said, we've seen the Lord, but it's not the group's common confession that he's, that he's risen. It's just like us. If you're a Christian, you better believe in the resurrection. Otherwise, you're not a Christian. It, the, look, the fact that he arose is what we call the common confession of anybody that's the real deal. The moment you, you deviate on the resurrection, there's a couple other things. The fact that God became a man. If you say, no, God didn't become a man, but I'm a Christian. Well, you're not. Because the moment you don't believe in what everybody who is a Christian knows that God became a man. I mean, it's unbelievers who don't believe that. Or virgin birth. He didn't have a physical pops, a natural pops. Well, I don't believe that part, but I'm a Christian. No, you're not. Because every Christian, we get together in a big circle and we say, is Jesus Christ God? Who? Everybody is like the who. Was he born of a virgin or did he have a natural pops? Natural pops? A virgin. When he died, did he stay dead? Nah, man, he resurrected. There's somebody else. No, he didn't. So step to the side, bro. This is for the people who believe that. (laughs) These are disciples, students of Jesus. They watched his moves. These are people who care. We went through this when he had to send the spirit. The people like Jesus so much, they didn't want to hear about this. It's better if I go away. Jesus says, better if I go away, I'm going to send you another paraclete to be just what I've been for you. And, of course, they didn't like, dang, I don't want, like, nobody could be like you. Jesus said, yes, I'm going to send someone who's just like me. He's the, the spirit of truth. So here he, here he is now, and people care. So these are people who have everything invested, so they're all, just imagine a room of 10 to 12, 15, we don't know what the number was, but just think about a room full of disciples all sitting there with this glum look on their face. It's like, dang, the cats on the road to Emmaus, when they were talking to Jesus, said, man, we had hope that he was the one. So you got people who are saying, and I, 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 Yo, man, I'm, like, I thought this was the one. I mean, I disagreed with the leaders in Judaism for this dude. My parents warned me about him. I trusted in him. Gospel 101. If you're going to believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to have to believe in him, put stock in him, but everything... So if you're at the roulette table, let's say, and you're like, you got a few chips, you're like, I don't know if seven black is going to do it. So you spread it around, seven black, red nine, little 13, little something over here. And you got, so if you win, you win a little something. But it's not the same as if you had put all your chips on one, right, the winner. 
same thing. Like a lot of people want to put their chips on a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Muhammad and a little bit of Allah and a little bit of this and a little bit of that and some church attendance and some good works and some like my grandmother and her church attendance. And, and they're hoping that one of those things is going to get them somewhere. These are people who put it all on Jesus Christ. Same thing I was talking about. But, you know, when you when I was young and people, my pop tried to illustrate what it means to really believe, because it feels like all I got to do is believe in Jesus Christ. That seemed too simple. So you was trying and they always used to say it's not mental belief, but belief means placing your weight on something. So they always use the classic illustration of the chair. You know, you sort of, you know, do you think this chair is going to hold you up? And so you just flop, right? You just flop on it because you know it can hold you up. Well, when you were in school, back when I was in elementary school, cats like to play pranks on you. I don't know if they did this to you, but you'll go to sit down and they'll move what you were getting ready to put your weight on, right? So now the thing you're ready to put your weight on is no longer able to hold you up because it's not there. Now, every now and then you knew what they were up to. So you didn't throw your whole weight on it. You made it look like it, and you distributed your weight a little bit. So you'd be like, ah, like, give me the chair. I saw you. And you were still able to stand because your whole weight wasn't going on it, right? These are people who threw their whole weight on Jesus Christ, right? The disciple throws his whole weight. He does it sort of like, but what if Jesus really isn't? But just in case the Bible has been changed, well, it, well you just never know. So... It'll be primarily Jesus, but also, right? Now, the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm building this case is because everybody in verse 19 would fall. If Jesus falls, they fall. If Jesus is a fraud, they're fools. And then you and I have to ask ourselves, how invested in your trust in Jesus Christ are you? Like, do you feel like if Jesus is a liar, I'm duped? Or do you feel like, and if he's alive, so what? I'll rebound. Do you feel like, well, the way I trust Jesus is I sort of trust him, but then I sort of rely on me too because can't nobody do you like you could do yourself. Like, these are the types of things. In verse 19, everybody has something to lose. In fact, everything to lose. They've trusted in Jesus Christ. Now, let's look at the scene and how the comfort piece of the resurrection approaches people who are in the midst of discomfort. First of all, verse 19 starts and says that it's evening. It's evening. You don't necessarily have to read anything to it's evening. It could just be a time of day. However, one thing you do know is here it is that it's evening. And in John's gospel, it says when Judas went out, it was night. The idea here is it's almost like there's this approaching darkness that parallels what their hearts already feel. When my wife and I first got, um, had our first child, Jeremiah, he always seemed to cut up at night. And so, like, we knew when the sun started going down, uh, an eeriness went over us because we knew what we were in for. And so it was like, it's, it's only seven, but the sun is going down. We're, like, getting scared and nervous, like, oh, no. Uh, like, it's like, what? It's, it's seven. Like, seven? What's up? It's getting dark. What? It's getting dark. You don't understand. He just yells, and we ain't going to get no sleep. And, like, just the fact it was evening was problematic. And here, it's almost like they're sitting in this room. 
the text starts off its evening, connecting it to the fact that Mary earlier that day had gotten wind that Jesus was up. Now that they're all together, it's the first day of the week. For the, the Jew, which they, the, the, these were primarily Jews, uh, if not all Jews, uh, the Sabbath was the big deal. Now you're on a day that's, that, that would be changed, but it's, it's no big deal right now. It's the first of the week. It's the day that Jesus did say that he would resurrect. The doors are locked. These people not only are, it's evening, uh, their emotions are sort of like, this could be described as a little dampened or dark. Uh, uh, the, the doors are locked for fear of the Jews. So now you got people who are in there scared. They're all talking about how much they have to lose. They're all talking about, but I've heard stories about him being uh, alive, but they don't know because there's, there's no body to be found. And so now look what we have here. We have at the point of that frustration, the point of that dismay, that despair, the Bible says, the doors being locked, Jesus comes in and says, peace be to you. The text gives you this idea that Jesus Christ comes in the midst of their situation, A, uninvited, B, he's able to move past any barrier that's placed there. Now, we, mo we usually, we just jump to, he had this unique body that passed through the doors. But that's not really what this is saying. All it's saying is, because we don't know what happened. We don't know if he came and the doors blew open. We just know that when he got there, the doors was locked. And we don't know if he just went through the doors. We don't know if he just appeared in the room out of thin air. All we know is locked doors where people were inside trying to protect themselves from any kind of invasion coming in. Though, if Rome wanted to get in, Rome could just smash the doors down. But the idea of John's gospel is... Jesus Christ shows up in resurrected form because he's here to pronounce comfort in the midst of discomfort just by his presence. And he says, peace, I leave with you. John 14, 27 said, my peace I give you. I don't give it as the world gives it. Any Hebrew would have stepped into a room and been like, yo, peace be with you. Shalom Aleichem. Yo, peace be to what you like. But tonight you got to see this has a different kind of pregnancy with it. Who needs peace? The people who got, who think that it may be over for us. The people who've been thinking about getting their old job back. The disciples who are thinking about them being put out the will or now they're out the synagogue or will never. Like, all these people need peace. I don't know about you, but when God makes you frightened about your sin. See, if you don't, if you don't care about sin, you don't feel you need peace with God. Most people think that God's just cool with everybody because God so loved the world, so they think it's cool with them and God. But the Bible paints a picture that God and man are enemies, that he's got a hit list, and your name is on it until he removes it. And so the idea is if Jesus comes in and says, peace, Moses, when, when everybody throughout the Bible that encountered God was so scared that usually the God had to say, peace, or don't be afraid. Now, today, we get stories of people seeing God, and it's always, I saw the Lord, it was a bright light, and we went and had tea and crumpets. Like, it's, it's, that's not how it was. Usually, when they, people saw God, they were frightened, and God has to assure you, peace, 
I give to you. Like, don't just assume it's peace. You never know. I could be coming to smash. But when he initiates peace to you, then you say, I got peace with God. How you know? Because God likes everybody. No. Why? Because God extends me peace. So now resurrected Jesus comes in to a room full of people who've got doors locked. Clearly they're afraid. And then he says, peace. Imagine, stop thinking about going back to fishing. Imagine, stop contemplating whether or not you can get tax collecting job back. Imagine, stop thinking about what you're going to tell your parents to make them say you can get back into the will. And today, imagine you feeling peace. Stop thinking about, is there another religion? God has given you peace. Well, should I do something besides just believe? Resurrected Jesus is the only one who can come in and say, peace be with you. The resurrection not only brings comfort, but it ushers in a confirmation. Think back to chapter 14. I'm going to read it. You don't have to turn there uh, uh, unless you want to. Chapter 14, look what the Lord Jesus said. He said, and I'm going to start with 18. The Lord Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. A dead Jesus would have left them as orphans. The resurrection brought a confirmation. He says, yeah, I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Here's a confirmation. It's being confirmed. He's actually there. Yet a little while in the world will see me no more. He didn't appear to everybody. He appears to them. He says, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Another confirmation. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you in me, and I in you. Another confirmation. The resurrection brought to them a confirmation, a confirmation of his promises, several of them. A confirmation of his power. Who is this that can just penetrate locked doors? If you didn't think he was powerful before, uh, uh, like now you know. And he comes in and he shows them his hands and he shows them his side. And he says, don't fear. The same one that went down is he who's risen. I didn't swap. I didn't go to heaven and get a new suit. I didn't like duck the cross and then my stunt double filled in like some religious believe that Jesus never died. He went on to live. Oh, Judas was on the cross. Some people say when he died, Jesus material part disintegrated and and now this would be some sort of mystical phantom jesus comes in and says nah the resurrection confirms my promises concerns my power uh concerns my perfection the only people who die and stay dead are sinners Pilate said he's he's not guilty yet they still crucified him the question is with the heavenly court rule like Pilate. And, and, and do wrong a man who's right. The heavenly court verifies that Jesus is perfect because he comes back. Same body, just improved form. 16, chapter 16, 16 to 22. Turn there real quick. Just want to show you how. Uh, again, Jesus says something similar. This confirmation. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this? He says to us a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? What is uh, 
We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves by what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Sounds circular. Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament. What were they in the room doing? about comfort versus uncomfort. What do you think they were still in the room doing? What do you think the last few days had been? You will weep. You will lament. But the world will rejoice. What do you think the Sanhedrin was doing the last few days, toasting that they were rid of this Jesus? It says, but you, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because an hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. Flip back. Chapter 20, the confirmation. Look back. says here, verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Then the disciples were glad. They didn't just need Jesus to whisk through like ghosts where you kind of like, did you hear that? And you sort of like, Dag, I know he's out there. They needed Jesus Christ to do what he said. A resurrection. A resurrection brings comfort. A resurrection brings confirmation. Resurrection doesn't just give you a party. Yay, we're back together again. The resurrection also assumes and affirms a commission. John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. It assumes a commission. What better time and what better way to reiterate, but don't get excited and just want to party at the fact I'm not dead and I'm alive. Remember, I've been telling you that I've been grooming you to do something. Church, we love to have a good time. We love to congregate around the reality that he's risen. We love to be with one another up in the room in the huddle, celebrating the fact that Jesus is our Lord. Celebrating the fact that his promises are what they are. Celebrating the fact that he's the perfect one. Celebrating the fact that like, he, has, he has power that can change our circumstances. Often what we have a trouble doing is recognizing that the peace he gives us the promises he gives us, the power he gives us, is just for there to be no excuse in us doing what he said, and that is his commission, as the Father sent me, so send I you. If you're a churchgoer and you love church, but you wouldn't describe yourself as one who's on mission, following the pattern of Jesus Christ, you're just what people are in culture, churchgoers. Gatherers, you're up in the room and you're excited that Jesus is still around, but he says, I send I you. You would think that Jesus would be happy, they're just happy that he's there. Like he would just get caught up in the moment. I know it's crazy, you should have seen it. I made a spectacle of the demons too. You should have seen the look on their faces when they realized, oh man, and Sanhedrin, psh, I ain't even gonna show up on them. I'll hand it them. Like, this is not the Jesus we're talking about. 
He skips through the fanfare, just like with Mary. Ah, don't touch me. I got to go to the Father. Jesus is so focused. He's so about business. We're imitators of him. Can you be about business when it really would be nicer to just stay at the party? Can you be about business when the job sort of like, let's just be, like, have a nice job. And like, like Jesus says, no, as the Father sent me, so send I you. And he goes on to make this because the idea here is in what way are we supposed to see our sending in light of Jesus' sending? Somebody could say, man, maybe we should all not have a place to lay our head because Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. Maybe we should start having our kids in a manger, you know what I mean, because Jesus had his kid in a manger, like Jesus was born in a manger. No, it's not in every way, but the scent themes in John is that one came from above not to do his own agenda, but to, for, for God the Father to live out his agenda through him. So as the Father sent me not to do my own thing, but sent me to do his thing, so I'm sending you not to do your own thing, but my thing. So now you've got to go home and ask yourself, can I honestly say that this is me doing his thing? Or is this me doing my thing and I just think he shouldn't have a problem with it because at least it's not smoking weed? Well, he shouldn't have a problem with it because at least it's not sin. But you have to ask yourself, as you step up in light of the resurrection... In the light of the fact that the resurrected one, at the moment you're celebrating the fact he's the resurrected one, still is talking to you about this thing called mission. Here at Epiphany, we're trying our best to develop a whole culture where even our, like everybody sees themselves on mission every day. Every day you see yourself as on mission. You choose where you live based on mission. Hmm, dang, I like it here better, but based on the mission, I should be here. Now, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, the first thing Jesus Christ did in Luke chapter 4 was to, to show his commitment to enduring sacrifice just to be obedient. So even if obedience means I can't eat for 40 days and 40 nights, and then when somebody says, duh, dummy, just, you know, wriggle your hands and make stones bread. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, I don't have to satisfy myself just because I want it. Same principle. Mission says, hmm, to obey God and to be on mission says, I do what I do based on how are you living your agenda out through me. This will mess you up right here. It's just not American. We grow up, we hate, like, we like our parents because they do stuff for us. We get a little older and then we stop liking our parents because they hinder us. Then we can't wait till we're grown, not because I can't wait to pay rent. I can't wait to have bills. I can't wait to budget. Like, no, we can't wait to do what we want to do. All of a sudden, you meet Jesus at 18, 19, 20, right before you were going to be able to drink when you wanted to drink because you're old enough now. Now you hear about him coming in, the divine parent. Some of some, don't be drunk. And it may be better for you not to drink and give in context because you might get drunk. Don't do, you're like, dang, I was just at the age when I was going to be able to do whatever I wanted and go wherever I wanted. And, but now this new authority and this new priority is in my life so that I can't even do what I always wanted to do. Jesus Christ here says, it's my example that should describe your example we can't say it enough we're not beating a dead horse john is and jesus is because every time you turn around he's talking about i'm sent 
And when I'm sent, I'm not sent to do my will, but the will of he who sent me. And he said, like, Jesus' whole thing was, for you, any time is the right time. For me, I got a different timetable, the time my father says. Jesus was at the wedding. Turn water into wine. Do something. Help us to get more wine. My hour hasn't come. Like, Jesus was on mission. And you and I have been called to the same mission by the one who resurrected. The one who showed his hands. His side. See, this isn't somebody else coming in Jesus' behalf. The resurrection assumes and affirms the commission. Look what he says about this commission or this mission. He says here, As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. All right, y'all. Here's the difficulty. This is Easter evening. It says here he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're familiar with Acts 2, it was on Pentecost. Many days later, over 40 days later, Pentecost. Now you're sitting here saying, well, wait, did they get the Spirit of God here and then at Pentecost get another dose? Or... Did they get the Spirit of God in part here and then later on got another dose? What's going on here? Now, if you don't care, like, whether or not there's a contradiction in the Bible, you'll just read it and say, I don't know, which I care and I'm still saying I don't know, but not because I haven't looked at the issue. Let me just give you a couple of things that people have said just in case you run into somebody and say, see, the Bible got contradictions. They got the Spirit here and they got the Spirit at Pentecost. I don't know which one it is. John Calvin says, yo, they were just sprinkled with the grace of the Spirit of God. But the full power came in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Other people say, well, now I believe God breathed into them new life right here. But then in Acts 2, he was empowering. When, when the Spirit of God comes, you'll have power and you'll be my witnesses. So Acts 2 was like, okay, now I got my ministry power. There he was giving me a different type of life. And now he's giving, somebody say, no, reverse that. Here he's talking about giving you power for ministry. I send you. Acts 2, he was giving everybody a uniformed new life where he created a new community of people put into the, the Spirit of God in Acts 2. Somebody else says, well, this is the same thing that happened in Acts 2. John just crunches it in so that it seems like it happens on Easter rather than Pentecost. At the end of the day, it's very difficult, but I actually happen to side with something that is a minority position. I'm going to lay it out for you, and you decide as you do studies, man, because it's a very difficult one. Actually, uh, this guy by the name of Theodore Mops, uh, Mopsustia, now the problem with him is his view and the view that I'm about to espouse was condemned at one of the councils, the Council of Constantinople in 553 A.D. Like, oh, you're a heretic, right? So, no, um, this view I don't think is heretical, even though back then they said it was. Uh, but I'm in good, uh, I'm in good company uh, with a couple of people that um, that see a problem with uh, this being John's uh, Pentecost. First of all, 
Our English text says that he breathed on them, but the actual Greek just says that he breathed. And again, you have to just take my word for it or do your own study. He breathed, but it doesn't specify on him or on them. The verb for breathe only occurs one time in the New Testament, and that's right here. So we can't flip in the Bible and find other places where they use the verb to see. The concept of God breathing and saying, receive the Holy Spirit, makes us think, oh, he breathed on or in them like God breathed in Adam and he became a living soul. So our minds immediately go to, if he breathed out, he must have breathed on or breathed in because he said, receive the Spirit. So he was giving them or imparting something to them. However, nothing inherent uh, in in the verb itself makes you say, it has to be that way. Follow me. Now we look outside the New Testament at its uses at other places where they use it in Greek. And there's always what we call a preposition to let you know. Did he just breathe out? Did he breathe on? Did he breathe in? They always tell you which one it is. So technically, it could say he breathed and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The idea here would be that. Jesus Christ is symbolically going through a motion and saying, receive the spirit, which you can't do what I'm telling you to do. Go and as the father sent me, I'm going to send you. You can't do that without a power source. However, the power source is yet to come. I'm going to unify the moment when the power source comes. This is another reason why we say that. Thomas is not here right now. Now, that would mean that Thomas missed the original point at which the Spirit of God was given to the original saints. Also, after this moment, you see them still looking like a cowardly bunch because next week they're going to be behind the closed doors. This says they were behind there for fear of the Jews. They're still not this bold people you're going to see in Acts 2 after the Spirit comes. They still are quarreling and, you know, Peter is, well, what about John? And don't seem to be as focused as they are in Acts 2 when the Spirit of God comes. So, what am I saying? I'm saying that here you have Jesus resurrected saying, receive the Spirit of God. But it's a symbolic act of what's about to happen to all believers at one time. And so what like and this is not a thing that you have to divide over, but it is a thing where you have to reconcile, because if they got the spirit here, what happened in Acts two many days later? And why in Acts two do we see such a radical impact of the spirit on their lives? And in John's gospel, we don't see that. In fact, next chapter, we're going to see they've gone back to fishing and they're just living their lives as though life has to move on. So he says here, the commission, not only is it ascending in the way that God sent Jesus, but it's predicated on the spirit of God. It's predicated. The world and some Christians don't understand that when you see the spirit, it's not to get our praise on. Often the spirit is not to just run around for our blessing, but the spirit is always tied to, because you need equipment for the task. However, Jesus says, peace be to you. This is not a harsh taskmaster. 
This is your part of his goodwill to us. Participate with me in this ministry I'm sending you. What kind of mission is this? He says next, verse 23, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Y'all still with me? Now I'm confused. First I was confused about did the Spirit come and on Easter or at Pentecost. Now I'm confused because do we forgive sins or do God for, does God forgive sins? It says here it looks like now he's saying receive the Spirit. When you get the Spirit, you'll have the wherewithal to forgive sins or not forgive sins. Which one is it? Once again, somebody would look at you and say, see, the Bible's got contradictions. Mark 2 says only God can forgive sins. Now it's saying here that you forgive sins. Somebody say, well, that used to be the case, but now in the age of the Spirit, we can forgive sins. Well, I want to look at a couple of passages and just say, first of all, the apostles never walked out forgiving people's sins. They only proclaimed that forgiveness of sins was possible in the name of Jesus. So whenever you get to a passage where it seems to clearly mess with something you already know is true, like only God could forgive sins, you got to ask yourself, dang, like, is the Bible contradicting itself or am I misunderstanding what it's saying? So I'm just going to read a couple of passages real quick. Acts 10, 39 to 42. Uh, and he says, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Uh, Peter is talking. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Peter's reflecting back on actually the case that we're talking about here. He's talking to Cornelius, uh, a Roman centurion who liked God but needed the actual in order to be saved. So he's talking to him. He's saying, you know, Jesus, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day, made him to appear, not to all people, but to us, those of us that needed comfort, those of us that had put our stock in him, those of us, uh, the disciples, 10 plus whoever was there with him, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to people and to testify that he is the appointed, the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. They just say, so he told us to go out and forgive people. He said he told us to go out. So as the father sent me, so send I you and proclaim that forgiveness can be yours in his name. So he's reflecting back to this moment. Another one, Paul, the apostle. Another apostle who could have said, yo, I can forgive your sins, or I can just say, nope, I ain't going to forgive your sins. I don't like you anyway, right? He doesn't do that. Acts 13, he talks about, uh, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised from the dead, again, reflecting back on this, he who God raised from the dead did not see corruption. Hear my hands, hear my side. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Once again, 
We're just trying to understand, is God saying that we as Christians go around and forgive people's sins? Or is he saying we as Christians have been told to go out and proclaim that forgiveness is available through him? Now, based on how people respond to you proclaiming his name as the one who forgives will determine whether or not their, their sins are forgiven or their sins remain. Now, fast forward. John is sitting here using the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus to infuse them with comfort to confirm that he has authority and power and then to commission them to walk in that authority and power. Now, at this time, the average Jew who wanted to know if they stood right with God would go to the priest, go to the same people that Jesus was crucified by. They would have to go through the leadership. They would want to know, what does the leaders say? Jesus here is giving, he's creating a whole new community of authority. They don't look like much. They're behind closed doors afraid right now. But don't worry, the spirit is coming. They don't, they don't have education. It doesn't make sense. You've got these lofty cats that know the scripture called the Sanhedrin. You've got these rich people. You've got these leaders of all of Israel. They've got juice with Pilate and Rome. And yet Jesus says, by the spirit of God, I'm going to start a little ragtag bunch of people who have the authority not tell you whether or not God feels you or God accepts you. But I got this group that's going to go around and proclaim a message and then they'll be able to let you know whether or not your sins are forgiven or if your sins remain on you. Right now, people say this, Christians say this, well, I'm not going to get into it because I can't tell nobody if they're going to heaven or hell. Well, I don't know. I ain't going to judge nobody. I got my own sins. Well, you know, you can't, you can't say what's going to happen. Like, this is debunking. You can't say. You don't know. And the point is, we proclaim a message that Jesus Christ is the name. And based on people's response to that name, their sins either remain on them or their sins have been washed away. You don't say, I don't know. Unless you don't know. But if you're in the group that he says, receive the spirit. Who, everyone who comes to Christ is indwelt by the spirit and now are a part of the group sent. What is the group sent doing? Not just going to church, but proclaiming by life and lips. There's one way to have sins forgiven. Now, if you don't, like, if you're scared of that, like, I, I don't even feel right seeing myself as part of the group of people who give a message, and depending on how people respond to that, it puts people in a ca two categories, forgiven or your sins are still with you. But that's why Peter and him, none of them felt like that at this juncture, which is why he said, receive the Spirit. And at Pentecost, what do we have? Peter, who used to be behind locked doors, saying, men of Israel, you killed them. If the Spirit of God sweeps through this place, we may shout, but it ain't the Spirit if we don't leave here and tell somebody there's one name. And right now, you're in here. You may like Jesus, and you may like church. You may, oh, Epiphany's cool, and you may think somebody's cute, and you may like certain books that's out, religious. You may go to this and that. 
but are your sins forgiven? A group of people, not because they're special, but because the Spirit is in them, were sent to tell you, as the Father sent Jesus, Jesus sent us to tell people, the Father has a requirement that you bow to the name. The name of Jesus, it it doesn't get you pop fans. It'll make people mad. Let me close. People have been saved and have been sent by the risen Lord of the people who have been given the Holy Spirit to give them joy in a world that's hostile, boldness because of the task at hand. And they're able to proclaim the message of the gospel that sins can be removed through Jesus Sins will be retained if you reject Jesus. We see them in doors that are locked to keep the world out or keep the authorities out. Jesus appears within and sends them out. Says, you're not going to be able to stay in these little private huddles. Receive the Spirit. I'm sending you out. They're afraid of Jewish leadership, and yet Jesus Christ empowers them to be His leadership. That's what's crazy. Like... That's the gospel. The gospel is people who don't deserve it get stuff. People who don't look like it are stuff. You don't look like a saint, but you are because of this thing that he does in you. You don't look tough. I'm not. But because of him who is in me, I get bold on matters of faith and who he is. Wait, but you're not, you don't look like a pastor. I know, that's crazy. He gives gifts as he sovereignly wills. You don't look like a teacher. In fact, you usually aren't. I know, but when he gets a hold of me, all of a sudden, what I say becomes clear to you. And so, here's this group. The week was the day they originally were grieving. Now the first day of the week, according to Revelation 1.10, became known as the day of the Lord. I got to go. The resurrection also confronts. The resurrection also confronts. What? Unbelief. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hand the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Ume in the Greek, which means the strongest form of it absolutely will not happen. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Same thing as before, except Thomas is there. Then, verse 27, he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. But believe. The resurrection confronts disbelief. If you don't believe this one, it's a wrap. Like if you don't, like, he healed the sick. I don't believe it. Okay, I do. I got another one. He raised the dead. Okay, I got He himself got up. I'm still not sure. 
What more is there? People wonder why Jesus is the only way. Like, who else you going to believe in? The resurrection confronts his unbelief. Jesus didn't let him, like, he'll get it eventually. This is a classic case of Jesus doing everything for one sheep. Everybody else believes he comes back for one cat that was missing. Thomas, the one who didn't believe. You know why? Because belief is a requirement. You can't not believe, but God, but God still loves you. Like, he know, I, like, please get your theology from the Bible. Stop disbelieving belief. The resurrection confronts. It confronts unbelief, and then look what it does. It brings about a certain confession. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. I'm going to read this summary statement of the book of John to close. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. My Lord and my God is what he said about Jesus. What do you say about Jesus today? Like, I just think about the hood. The hood doesn't say, Jesus, he's Lord and God. Like, it's true he's Lord and God, but it's after a resurrection and you being completely opened up to his resurrection that you go from he's Lord and he's God. He's my grandmother's Lord and, my God, his, and God. To my Lord and my God. This is the epitome of the Christian heart that's completely convinced that Jesus is who he said he is. That he did what he said he'd do. And now you say, my Lord and my God. Till you've gotten here, you won't sing really, your song, like during singing time, it won't really be much. During giving time, it won't really be much. During service time, it won't be really that much. But when he's Lord, when he's God, let's just recap. The resurrection comforts people who are placing their stock in him. There's all kinds of implications. What about people who want a a better body than they've had in this life? The resurrection brings comfort because it was bodily. The resurrection comforts. The resurrection, it confirms that Jesus Christ is worth you putting your whole life in his hands. Jesus Christ is who he said he was. Jesus Christ was actually pure and innocent, which is why death couldn't hold him. It also commissions. It's through the resurrection that Jesus Christ says, listen, don't just celebrate realities about me. I'm sending you out on a mission. It also confronts unbelief. This world's unbelief about Jesus, no excuses. He died. He rose. It brings about the most climatic confession you can make in your life. Gun to my head. He's my Lord and my God. 
knife to my throat. Jesus is not just Lord and God. He's my Lord and my God. Now, if, if it's not true, I'm done because I'm not trusting anything else. Is that your final answer? Yes, it is because I have no other answer. And right now, you will, your sins are forgiven. That's what the Bible says. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, my Lord and my God, and believe in your heart, he's resurrected. God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Sins are forgiven in him. Sins remain on you if you reject him. And so today, as we bow, as we close our eyes, as we bow our heads, just think about where do you stand with Jesus Christ? Is he just a religious dude like a whole bunch of other religious dudes? Or is Jesus Lord and God? Is he just Lord and God like the Muslim told me yesterday? He said, I mean, he's the one. He's the one every Christian should want. If you're a Christian, I myself am a Muslim. So he delineated between what a Christian should think about Jesus and what he thinks about Jesus. The question on the floor is, you know, Christians say he's Lord and God. The question is, is he your Lord and God? Yesterday I saw Billy Graham, and our eyes are closed, an old Billy Graham where he was saying, to be saved, you must be willing to leave sin. Then you'll realize, even though you're willing, you're not able. And since you're not able to turn from sin, you're not able to do what's right consistently. You're not able to do right enough to make God forget about all the wrong. You're not able to turn from sin, willingness to turn, and admission, dag, I'm messed up. I need to turn from this. God can swoop in and give you the power to turn from sin. But who are you going to call? Are you going to flip through the roller decks of religious heroes and take a pick? Are you going to try to drum them all up and see which one can... The Bible says one name by which men must be saved. One name where forgiveness is removed rather than forgive uh, sins remain. That's the name of Jesus. Believe on him today and be saved. Walk out of here. Place your trust in him. Think differently about him. Um, talk to somebody about your struggle with him being all that you need celebrate him if you already believe in him because John says I write this that you may believe that he's Christ who would believe that he's Christ other than other Jews who were still wondering about Messiah this was to bring non-believers and then to nourish believers believe keep believing that Jesus is the Christ the expected one who came from Israel that he's son of God, that he's God the son, same essence as God the father, just different role, son. That he's the son of God and that there is life, forgiveness of sins, and anyone whose sins are removed, like Jesus got up from the grave because he had no sin, anyone whose sins are removed lives forever. There's eternal life in his name. Father God, we pray that that is the case today. We pray that your people get rocked off.